Good morning. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, it's not a, a common book for those of us who uh, even have been in the church for a while, but we have had the privilege of walking through this book, and we find ourselves in chapter 10 of the book of Nehemiah. So either click there or turn there, and we get the uh, privilege to look at chapter 10 today. Next week, we will look at uh, the end of the book, chapters 11 through 13, and then we will uh, have a one-week break, and then we'll dive into the book of Romans together. So that's where we're headed. Uh, book of Romans will start in May. So looking forward to all of that, and today we will be <clears throat> looking at Nehemiah chapter 10 as we think about um, what we have articulated the book of Nehemiah is about is this idea of new beginnings together. This privilege that we have coming out of COVID season, coming out of personal struggles, coming out of corporate struggles, this ability we have to link arms and to say under the banner of Jesus by his powerful Holy Spirit, this is a new beginning. And this new beginning like it was for Nehemiah is not a new beginning that is primarily physical but it's spiritual when you read the book of Nehemiah you think man that dude built a wall right okay but there was more than that even after the wall was complete you're only halfway through the book and the ambition after that was not to build a wall but it was to form a people and as we think about this new beginning as a church it's not about bricks and mortar it's not about a physical building it's about how we can be a part of being the spiritual people of God and it begins as we've talked um, regularly throughout this series of being a people who are soaked in God. We just treasure and adore and love Jesus. We're a people who confess our sin and a people who walk in repentance and not pride. We're a people that are characterized by prayer, who go hard after God in communing with Him. We're a people that help form one another, to serve alongside one another, to love one another. This is what it means to be the spiritual house and what it means for us to have this new beginning together. We're committed to invest our lives for the glory of Christ into the people of God so that we might be a part of the mission of God for the glory of God. So let's look here now as all of we've had a lot of togethers, whether it was uh, new beginnings together, whether it was praying together, whether it was confessing together, today it is going to be obeying together. Nehemiah chapter 10, obeying together. And so I just want to read Nehemiah 9, 38, and then Nehemiah 10, 28 and 29. I know it should have been easier than that, but that's, where we're, that's how we're going to start. <laughs> Nehemiah 9, 38. And then Nehemiah 10, 28 and 29. The word of God reads as follows. Because of all of this, the people of Israel said this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Then chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. 
that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and statutes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your help. We have come here, a lot on our hearts, a lot on our minds. And it is a beautiful gift to us to be able to weekly have this time where together we stop to adore your son. We gather to treasure Christ together. And we ask, oh God, that even off of the pages of Nehemiah 10, our affections for Jesus would multiply. Our hope would increase. Our despair would find its end in Christ. Our fears would grow strangely dim in the light of your promises to always be with us. Our temptation to make so many other things our Savior would diminish so that all of our hopes are placed upon Jesus. Father, come. Come right now, we pray, and give us more of yourself. That we might be a people that love you and love one another. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So, needless to say, we hate boundaries. We do. <laughs> know it or not, we hate boundaries. You've seen these moments. You might have experienced them yourself. Parent has child in hand. You're walking through a parking lot to get to a store. And what you see from the child is this. You know, this massive pull because they do not want that hand in that hand. They, they just don't want it. Why? They want their autonomy. I want what I want when I want it. We hate boundaries. We hate restrictions. We want freedom. That's why when, as a parent, you might say, let's only watch this much TV, or let's only play this much Xbox or video games, or it should only happen on these certain days, or anything like that. Whatever that boundary is, that line that you have drawn is the line of war. It is, I just want a little bit more. A little bit more. Why is that? Because we hate boundaries. You've heard the stories or you've seen those who've been told, don't wear that cl those clothes out only to find that they changed, but they took those clothes and put them in the backpack in order to go and then they changed later into what they wanted. Relationships find that, um, an, as an example, that we hate boundaries. It's when multiple people look at you and they say, I don't think this relationship is good for you. They love you, they know you, but they don't think it's best. And then what wells up in the heart is, don't tell me what to do. That happens. It happens. We are all anarchists at heart. We are. We're rebels to the core. And we are fine to follow any rule that agrees with us and that's on, on our timeline. That's not hard to do. It's when we are told to do something we don't want to do, then all of a sudden we cry foul. 
Note, it's not submission or obedience if it's only doing the things you want to do or that you agree with or doing it when you want to do it. Even our culture's understanding of gender and sexuality, all the confusion that's going on in our culture, note there is no confusion in the scriptures. All of this is a result of hating restrictions. Even the category, which I would call an unhealthy, destructive category of pansexual, which is really popular today, is the culture's solution to, te- to say, do not give me a boundary regarding my sexuality. We hate boundaries. We hate them. But we die without them. We die without boundaries. One of the greatest illustrations of this is the skydiver, right? 20, 30,000 feet, you jump out of a plane, and as you're going down, I hate restrictions. I love the freedom. But surely, at that moment, you love the restriction of the parachute, right? You do. It's not freedom to not have a parachute when you're falling 20,000 feet. Because if you don't have the parachute when you're skydiving, the result will be splat. Boundaries are actually a gift. They're good for us. They're a gift from Almighty God. What if boundaries really are good? What if they're healthy for us, like speed limits? Like, they're annoying, but they're probably good that we can't all drive as fast as we want to drive. Because we struggle with love your neighbor as yourself when we're in a car. I don't know what it is. It like gives you, you know, this kind of amnesia to love and this self-preservation moment. Traffic signals are the same way, especially like when you pull up to a light, you know, and there's like nobody coming and you're sitting here obeying the red light. You know, it's like these are just all of the things that go on in your heart. It's just this evidence, anarchy. I hate boundaries. I want to rule my own life. But God gives us boundaries. He does. He gives us boundaries as a gift. And because they're from God, all of God's boundaries, all of God's commands, they're a gift. They're good for us. God doesn't do anything bad. Every time God gives a command or sets a boundary, it is always good. And good, according to God, means it helps us love him and it's the happiest place we can be. So don't let your feelings, and don't let the world tell you that boundaries are evil. On the contrary, they are a gift. They are a gift. And in the book of Nehemiah, specifically here in chapter 10, what we are going to see is a people acknowledging their temptation to rebel against boundaries and how it was so rooted in history. Their parents rebelled against boundaries. Their grandparents rebelled against boundaries. People have been rebelling against boundaries since our father and mother, Adam and Eve. From the very beginning, we just are created by nature and by choice to rebel against boundaries. It's humanity. But in Nehemiah, we're going to look at now the people of God are ready to obey. They see the error of their ways and the errors of history and they want to obey. And so today we'll look at three things. The path to obedience, the obligation of obedience, and the power to obey. The path to obedience, the obligation of obedience, and the power 
to obey. This first one, the path to obedience. The path to obedience is stillness. The path to obedience is stillness. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. Why did I start there? Because I thought we were doing chapter 10. Because, you know, like you're getting on an interstate, you need an on-ramp. So this is the on-ramp, 938. It says, because of all of this, we made a firm covenant in writing. Covenant, this agreement between God and man that we will do what you've said we will do. And that there's a penalty if we don't. We'll get there. They're saying they entered into this agreement, this covenant with God, because of all of this. What's the all of this? It's where we were. As Pastor Travis led us wonderfully through Nehemiah chapter 9, what we saw was this moment of prayer by the people of God. They spent time in prayer and they were calling out both the greatness of God and the perils of their forefathers and they just went through redemptive history and they just went check by check of all of the kindness of God and all of the failure of humanity. And they confessed their own sins too. It's not just they were guilty, I'm guilty. And that sense of stopping and being still and filling up an entire chapter's worth of praying to God, that's the all of this. Because of all of this, we enter into a covenant to obey Almighty God. Because of all of this, because of an acknowledgement of our sin, because we're going to stop and pray before the living God, we now can obey. The path to obedience is stillness. The path to obedience is stillness. And it began with where Ranjur um, helped us see in Nehemiah chapter 8 when the people finally got the taste of the word of God. And it was like, you remember what he said that we want the word. We want, this is like the mantra. I thought it was really helpful. It stuck with me, obviously. So this chant of the people, give me the Bible. This is what God's people are about. When you've been changed by the living God, you just want his words. If he speaks, I want to listen. What he says, I want to follow. And so it was in this moment of this people being convicted. We must be a word-based people. I've seen my failures. All of this led them to their obedience. Now, many times when we think of obedience, we're tempted to think about merely and primarily outward actions doing the right thing but obedience is more than just doing right things obviously doing right actions is better than doing wrong actions right (laughs) but God wants more he wants our hearts this is why he can say in Hosea chapter 6 verse 6 for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What did the word of God tell the people of Israel? It was, you must offer sacrifices because of your sin. These were burnt offerings and peace offerings and all kinds of offerings because they were sinful people. But he says, what I desire more than that outward action is a heart of steadfast love, a heart that mirrors my heart. Knowing God more than just doing an action And so you know what it's like, as do I, what it's like when your heart just isn't in it, right? (laughs) 
Your heart's just not in it. You know what you should do, but your heart's just not in it. We can go through motions without a love for God or a love for others. But let me tell you, the answer is not stop doing it until you feel it. The answer is repent of not feeling it and do it, asking him to change you. When when the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, he's not wanting you to never give until your heart is happy about it. That's not how that's going to roll. It's going to roll when you say, I know I'm not happy about it. God, give me joy. Forgive me for my joylessness. And then in the action of obedience, preceded by the prayer, God actually uses that obedience to change the heart. Same with gathering on a Sunday morning. I know what it's like to lay in your bed and to have the thoughts go through. And 2020 has only made it worse. It's just easier to stay here. Or it's just easier to watch it later. Remember, this watch it thing on TV, this is a temporary solution to a pandemic problem, but it's not the long-term solution. We are to gather because we need each other. (laughs) One brother I was listening to uh, this week in this church, he said, when you talk about greet one another with a holy kiss, there's something means that you got to like be in each other's presence, you know? Now, we're not, we're not going to be kissing on each other. Don't you worry about that, okay? But there's a sense of gathering, presence, seeing and being with each other that is part of the people of God. And so it's not that we don't all have these feelings of I don't want to. It's what do you do with them? Obedience, the path to obedience is preceded by stillness. It's preceded by, oh God, change my heart and help me to do, to obey. And in the obedience, God does a work. He does a work. Here's the way I've summarized it. I think the book of Nehemiah is describing this biblical pattern. Prayer precedes true obedience. Because true obedience is built not on the foundation of your actions, but of your dependence. True obedience comes when you realize how desperate you are for God. It begins there. Obedience is not to do for God, it's to trust God to do for you. I'll say it again. Obedience is not you do for God, it's to trust that God has already done for you, and then therefore you don't do to be accepted you do because you are accepted you don't do to be loved you do it because you are loved he's already done everything for you so now you know obedience is the safest place you can be it's the happiest moment that you can experience i know i know what it's like when you talk about obey it's just like it's just like you bit down on something bitter. I mean, it's just like, yuck, I don't like to talk about this, but we need a revolutionary shift on how we think about it. It's actually the pool for the drenched or for the the very dry soul. It It is this place where we can experience the very refreshment that we've been longing for. It is in obedience. It is. And so... When I know that God would have me turn from my sin and acknowledge that I need to change, 
these healthy moments of, oh God, change me, do a work in me, and now help me follow you. This is what God is calling us to do because the path of obedience is through stillness. And it won't happen right away. It doesn't just happen like that. You can't just snap and now all of a sudden everything is fixed. It's what Eugene Peterson calls long obedience in the same direction. Obedience doesn't just come by turning and acknowledging a sin and starting to act. Obedience comes, the heart of obedience comes when you are day after day in God's word, allowing his word to wash over you and to change you from the inside out. It's long obedience in the same direction. We all have cell phones, likely, and you've all experienced this more than likely. It is your phone is on 2 or 3%, and you need it to get you through the rest of the day, and it's like noon. And so what you do is you plug it in, but you've only got like five minutes, okay? So now it goes from 2% to like 8 or 10%, and then you go on, and you do your thing, right? But guess what you have to do? About 30 minutes later, depending on your usage, you're right back where you started. You feel drained. It's about to die. What is the only solution to a dead cell phone? Time. Time on the charger. You can't short circuit it. You can't get around it. The only thing that will take it from 2% to 100% is to sit there. And it is the most nauseating sit there you've, you, know, you can experience. It's like, come on, would you just go faster? What is the case for our hearts? It's, it's not just a, a quick check-in. It's not, we, there's a sense of time. The only thing that can give us a heart of obedience is stillness with the living God. Time to be with him. And that's what you see in Nehemiah. These people, they just spent time with the Lord calling out to him in Nehemiah chapter 9 acknowledging the past, confessing their own sin, and that's what led them to chapter 10. This ability to say, now I want to obey. Now I want to obey. So, whether it is this repentance from actions that like, you just don't want to, and in that moment you're repenting and you're obeying, or whether it's just this proactive sense of I need stillness with God, whatever it is, stillness is the path to obedience now one more thing jesus was our example in this been reading a book emotionally healthy leader i've quoted it before peter cesaro and he pointed out that when jesus was faced with some difficult decisions look at what happened with him in the garden of gethsemane what did you have he wanted so hard bad for his heart and his emotions to line up with his father's emotions like i just want to do what you want me to do but this was the hardest thing he's ever experienced. And so it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he had to do that not once, not twice, but three times. Because of how desperate, how painful this moment of obedience was. Because he was going to be obedient to the point of death. Even death on a Roman cross. Three times 
the Son of God pleaded through struggling, through tears, Father, make my heart ready for this moment. If it required that for Jesus, why do we think obedience is going to require less for us? It's a struggle. It's a struggle. Peter Cesaro also goes on to talk about a disciple of Apostle John was Ignatius. And Ignatius talked about praying a prayer of indifference. And this prayer of indifference is not indifference like pray that you don't care about things. It was a prayer of indifference that was, Father, make my heart indifferent to everything that is of me so that what my heart wants is all of you. Make my heart indifferent to my will so that what I experience in this moment is a craving for your will. The path to obedience is preceded by these struggles, this prayer, this yearning. It is not just really quick. It's not just really easy. Sometimes it can take time. Oh, God, I just, I'm wanting what I want when I want it. I'm guilty of that. Please change me. Make me indifferent to my will so that I can say with my Savior, not as I will but what you desire. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, not only do we have that path towards stillness, the path towards obedience is stillness, but you have this obligation of obedience that is laid down here in Nehemiah chapter 10. And it says in verse 28 and 29, you might ask, why in the world did you skip verses 1 to 27, well, you just look at it. <laughs> look at it. You're, I mean, come on. These are a bunch of people's names, and it, it makes you tired. So <clears throat> I think it's summarized by verse 28, you know, and the rest of the people. These are people, okay? These are people. There's a whole bunch of them, and what's the point? He's, he tells us, look at verse 28. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God. That's why these people are listed. That's why these categories are listed is after a season of prayer. They have separated themselves to the living God. They don't look like the nations. They look like a different people. They have separated themselves in their confession, in their posture of prayer, even in their location. There's a sense of they are in, they're migrating to the, the city of God. And so this Jerusalem, this place, and all you see is they have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God. They want to do what God tells them to do. It says their wives, their sons, their daughters all who have knowledge and understanding, they join with their brothers and their nobles and they enter into a curse and an oath. These things went together in this covenant and an oath was this promise. The curse was this penalty. And we don't fully even know what the penalty was, but it was a penalty that required some type of ritual that communicated punishment or some type of death, like social death, estrangement, or death itself. One example of this would be Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18. 
And it says, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between the parts. So I don't know what the curse was, but I want no part of it if it's that. Because they would take an animal, split it in two, pieces on this side, pieces on this side, and they would walk between the pieces and say, let it be done to me what was done to this animal if I break this covenant. So it's like, okay, that's the curse. And I don't know fully what it would be, social estrangement or death, physical death, but there was a, there was a penalty to be paid. And this is why it's so precious. In Galatians chapter 3, when it says, Now all who rely on doing the law to be made right before God, they're under a curse because guess what? We all fall short of perfect obedience, don't we? So what happens if the covenant is broken? Well, I'll tell you what happens. The Bible says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. The Bible says, Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. And the Bible says in Galatians 3, Jesus became a curse for us. So that we might be made right by faith. Jesus Christ is the one who steps in to be the curse, to pay the price, because, newsflash, you and I will never obey perfectly. We won't. And this begins a push to help us understand how are we to understand this chapter as new covenant followers of Jesus do you understand the question because let me just let me just make it a little clearer for you so what they did is they say we're going to obey all the law the law is good this is the law given to Moses we're going to obey it all all the commands and statutes and law and then they specifically begin to talk about specific issues in their culture and say we're going to obey those too we're going to obey this and we're going to talk and address this specifically because there were things going on in their context which was breaking the law. One of them was interracial marriage. And so, verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Okay. Let's stop. Let's think. What does this mean for us? I know what it meant for them. It meant that Jews were not supposed to marry those non-Jews around them. Why? Is it that simple? Actually, it's not. If you read the scriptures, this command was not an ethnic command. It was a religious command. This command had to do with faith, not simply ethnicity. How do we know this? Well, we know it because Ruth, a Moabitess, married a Jewish man, Boaz, and that was commended. Why? Because Ruth was a woman of faith, trusting in God. When Miriam and Aaron looked at Moses, a Jew, who married a black woman from Ethiopia, they said, I don't think this is that good. There was this sense of racial superiority. There should be no interracial marriage. They made it about race. 
So God says, well, if you think your Jewish whitish skin is better, then okay, I'll make you leprous. And he gave them leprosy, which is, makes your skin really white. So if your whiteness is what you love, then I'm just going to give you that, okay? Because God was not saying interracial marriage was evil. He was saying when unbeliever links together with believer, that is not the marriage union that God has for his people. This marriage covenant is meant to be a picture and a proclamation of God's love for his people. And so we have to ask, okay, so what did I do there? I went back and I looked at the whole of the Old Testament to try to understand how does that law come to us. What it meant for them was do not go outside and start marrying all these people around. What does it mean for us? Well, what we do is we read the book of the law as a whole and it communicates God's wisdom and that helps us know how to obey. It helps us. These are some difficult things because now what they're going to do here is they're going to talk about obeying the Sabbath day. And they're going to talk about giving all of this first fruits and uh, a shekel for a tax to give to support the household of God. Now you should be asking, is that law for me? Hope you understand why I'm going here. The people of God are people of God's word. The word of God is not just the last little 27 books called the New Testament. The word of God is this whole beast here. So when you open it up, it always makes me cringe a little when I'm talking to unbelievers or people who are seeking. And they're like, I'm like, okay, I would love for you to turn and to follow Jesus. And okay, so let's start in God's word. Okay, I'm just going to start at the beginning. And I'm going to read in Genesis and work my way through. Well, I think that's good, but it's hard to understand. And so how do we help one another understand what we're reading as we go through it? Because this whole book is ours. This whole book is God's word. This is why I bring it up. In Nehemiah chapter 10, it can be really confusing, but I think it's an opportunity to say these are commands given by God to the people of Israel. What am I to do with this? I'm reading on a Saturday morning, and I'm looking at Nehemiah chapter 10, and they're talking about interracial marriage, first fruits, and obeying the Sabbath, and giving a tax shekel for the house of God. What in the world do I do with this? And we're tempted to give up. And I just want you to know, as we look at this Old Testament law, this is law given by God to the people of Israel to care for them and to instruct them. But this law is embedded in the book of the law. It's embedded in the whole of the Old Testament, which actually communicates something about that very law that they're obeying. It communicates that the law will never change the human heart. And when it communicates this, it begins to point somewhere. Where is the law pointing? It's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. So just like I don't look at the command made to Noah, and the command is, Noah, go out and build an ark. Were you guys trying to do that this week? Did you read in Genesis 6 through 9 and it says, Noah, go build an ark? And okay, you're out building an ark. No, because you don't think that those commands are for you. They're for Noah. Similarly, 
as we look at these commands, these commands are given to the people of Israel at a specific time in a specific place for their good. But what you're going to see is in the book of Nehemiah, by the time you get to the end of it, they blow it. The story is, even the greatest intentions of obeying the law that God gave to Israel would fall short. It would fall short. And what that means is, it's like when you're reading a novel, and you read like chapter 5, but this novel has 10 chapters, you see that chapter 5 fits, but you're not sure how until you finish the story, right? And then it's like, oh, that makes sense. Well, we're just at chapter 10. We're not to the end of the book, and it just fits right here. And so you might be tempted to think, i got to obey these laws. No. By the end of the book, it tells you that not don't obey God's laws. It tells you that their attempt to obey the law of God perfectly was impossible. And so we're looking for one who could obey it perfectly. His name is Jesus, and he has come. And now we are not bound to obey the law made to Israel. We are bound to obey the law of Christ. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law that's bound upon us. It's a law of love. And there's so many commands that are given throughout the New Testament that are ours. We are not an anti-law people. We are a people that obey the law of Christ. But now, let's hit rewind, because you might think you get off the hook. The result has been in Christian history that people are like, well, then why in the world read the Old Testament? Because one, the Old Testament is not just law. It actually tells you the law is broken to fix the human heart. It's good and wonderful because it's from God, but it can't fix the heart. So then you might be like, why read this? Because the law of God makes you wise. The word of God makes you know the character of God and how he dealt with the people of God. There is so much in here that helps you understand the God that you love and how he's treated people. And so what we are meant to do is you will never understand your New Testament until you begin to understand fully your Old Testament and it begins to create this 3D picture of the Word of God and what it does in your heart is it helps you love Jesus. He is the point of the entire book. So, when you look at these, what, did, what might it look like to read this for wisdom? Well, in here, Here's what happens in the human heart. In this book, it talks about, okay, give this first fruit. First fruits mean the first kind of produce that came from your crops, you would give it to God. Or you would kill the firstborn animal, and that would be part of a sacrifice, or you would give that here. Or it was a, a shekel that was, that was required from everyone to give in order to support the household of God. Now, Sadly, here's what people do. Well, if I'm bound by the law of Christ, I don't have to worry about this at all. Because it doesn't apply to me. And what even more perverted happens is the heart says, well, if I'm not required to give a tithe, if I'm not required to first fruits, do I really need to be giving? 
if you read the Bible, 10% is not the ceiling, it's the floor. And surely, if you're reading this passage, the command of the living God is not be stingy and use money for yourself, but consider all that you have as to the Lord. Surely, when you read the Bible, you realize that's not your money, that's God's. When you read this passage, you realize this sense of generosity that God calls us to is going to cost us something. It's going to be painful. One brother, we were in a Bible study this week, one brother was just like, it doesn't make sense sometimes when we read this, but don't you think it would make a difference if every time you sin, you had to take two or three hundred dollars and you would just set it on fire right in front of you? I think you might think twice about what you look at or about how you talk to your family or something like that. Don't you think that might put a little check in your spirit? I'm just going to set on fire $200. Well, what about an ox? What about an animal that they would take and they would have to set on fire because of the, the grief of their sin and, all, and slaughter and all this blood that would go everywhere? Why in the world, when we read our Bibles... Do we then try to say obedience is less than these things? Oh, how sin has perverted our hearts. There's an obligation to obedience. And honestly, under Christ, it's not easier. It's harder. But it's also not less rewarding. It's more rewarding. Dear friends, I battle it too. Why read the Bible? Because when you read it and you really say that prayer of indifference, Father, not my will but yours be done. I want to do what you would have us do. May your will be my will. All of a sudden, it changes how you live. Now your marriage and sexuality is not off limits. Now your money is not off limits. We'll talk next week about Sabbath and how they spent time of prayer. Now my, my schedule and my day, that's not off limits. It's not because the law made to Israel is now binding on me. It's because I'm under the law of Christ. Love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love my neighbor as myself. And everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. The image I have is of a tennis shoe. If you have a tennis shoe that's laced up, you have all of these You've looked at, at laces. You know, they're made with all kinds of threads that run together to make a lace, right? And then you put them through all those little eyelets. And then, you know, at the top you tie it and you pull the string and it brings these two sides together. Well, this is what happens in the scriptures. So in here it says that the Levites and the priests, they were part of the ones who signed this covenant. I'm all in. I can do it all. Well, so the Levites and the priests, they were two they were, the Levites were the people of God that God had established that the priests would come out of. So, but not all, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. So now what you see is in the Bible, when you're looking at these Levites and priests, you realize that, okay, these priests, they were to be the mediator between the people of God and God himself. And they began to offer these sacrifices, and yet the priests were corrupted. The priests couldn't do it right. They had all bogged down, and they'd all gotten all whacked out and doing what they wanted to do. So we were looking for another priest. Jesus comes, 
He's the great high priest. He's the one who did perfectly what we needed done. And not only was he perfectly obedient, but he, was the me- he is the mediator between us and God. He's the only way we get to him. What did I just do? I took a thread that ran from the Old Testament and it runs all the way into the New Testament because the glories of Jesus is that he came and he tabernacled among us. He came to be with us. So other threads throughout the New Testament are the temple. Okay, there was a temple, it was a building, God dwelt there, but that broke down and so we needed a new temple. That was a person, his name was Jesus, and he came to dwell among us so that we are the temple of God as he lives inside of us. It's a thread. All these threads work together to do one thing. To point to us that Jesus is our only hope. When Jesus talks after the resurrection and he says, all of this book, it's about me. He's saying that there's these hundreds of threads in the, in the Bible that work together and they make one lace. That one lace has a name. His name is Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He pulls as he runs through all of the Bible. When you pull on Jesus, it pulls the Old and the New Testament together into one cohesive message that the people of God need. Jesus is the, is the linchpin. It's not that there's one God in the Old Testament, one God in the New Testament. All of the Bible points to one person, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And how do we get there? It says that the scriptures say that he is, he is the substance when all these other things are shadows. What does a shadow do? It tells you there was a tree right there, right? That the, the sun shines on a tree, it casts a shadow. The Old Testament had a bunch of shadows pointing that there's a tree somewhere. The tree's name is Jesus. <laughs> There's a person that fulfills all of these things. So how do you get Jesus out of Nehemiah 10? Because Jesus Christ is, he is the one that could obey perfectly when we couldn't. He is the one that will give us the power we need to do what we've been called to do. As we look at, Gen- at Nehemiah chapter 10, not only do we see that the path to obedience is to stop and be with the Lord, but we are obligated to obey. We are. We are obeying the law of Christ, allowing all of God's word to form our hearts so that we are obedient people. And I just wanted to give you a final word that when you go to obey, you are not left on your own. Dear friends, I don't know about you, but after you confess, when we are tempted, after you have sinned, when we confess, we're tempted to overpromise and underdeliver. Here's what I mean. We say, I'll never do that again, right? Haven't we done that? I'll never do that again. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to be perfect. And this is kind of the smell you get from Nehemiah 10. Comes from a good space. I want to obey all the way, but it was ultimately a, a leaning on self because they couldn't do it. They needed something more than just, I'm going to do it this time. I'll be perfect. I'll never do that again. And so what happens? When you mess up, you experience double shame, right? Not only because you now sinned at the very thing you did before, but now you also broke your word. You didn't keep your word to God. It's double shame. But if you remember what we've already said, that the path to obedience is stillness. It is not I will, it is first he has. 
It's not first, I will do better. It is first, look at what he has done. Look at his love. Look at his care. Here's what I mean. If you're guilty of something, stop to be with God. Shame tells you to run and hide. If you haven't obeyed, shame tells you to escape. Instead, run to be with God. Draw near. He is safe. He will not shame you. He will forgive you. He loves you and he draws near to you. And so, say, Father, forgive me for yelling. Father, forgive me for saying a hurtful thing. Father, forgive me for lying. Father, forgive me for being jealous or greedy or lusting or being afraid or being in total despair and not hoping in you. Father, forgive me that I lost confidence in you. Father, forgive me that I traded you for something else that won't satisfy. And in that moment, your next words are crucial. Will you say, now I will do this, I will be perfect, I'll do better? I would argue that put your hope in yourself way too much. Instead, let your next words after you confess be, oh God, I believe you have forgiven me. I believe that you love me and you are for me. I believe that you've given me your Holy Spirit, the very power I lack on my own. You have given me your Holy Spirit to do what you've asked me to do. Friends, we're not left alone. If this whole book points to Jesus, then you have power to obey the power of his Holy Spirit. That's why we're crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh I live by faith in the Son of God. I trust Him. And who's that Son? He loved me and He gave Himself for me. The cross points you to hope in the midst of our path to obedience because you're not alone. He'll give you everything you need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time to be together. I pray that we would not despise obedience, we would not despise boundaries, but we would see that you have given them to us as a gift. Father, I pray that this gift of boundaries, this gift of your word, that it would actually be life for us. Father, I pray that as we sit and read the Bible, now the Old Testament will not be something that we despise or that we just say is confusing, but we'll constantly look, how does this point to Jesus? How does this point us to Jesus? How does this teach us about his heart? Father, I pray the result is that our marriage and our sexuality and our money and our jobs, our career paths, everything, nothing's off limits to you. And Father, I pray what would happen is it would make us a radically generous, happy people. And that we would pray that prayer of indifference. Not our will, but yours be done. Oh, Father, make us indifferent to whatever is of us so that we might say with our Savior, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make us an obedient people, not just individually, but together for the sake of your name. Let's spend just a minute reflecting on how God wants to use this in your life. What's one step, one takeaway that God has for you from today? Maybe it's stillness. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's reading his word. Maybe there's something clearly that kept, kept resounding. I need to obey here. Whatever it is, turn to God. Confess your sin, but receive his forgiveness and walk in his power.